Now, last week, Jesus told us what to do when we hear truth. We're supposed to hear it, first of all, meaning, you know, he said, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, we can't be distracted. We can't halfway listen. We can't take what is God's truth and, you know, go, well, this is kind of boring, so I'm going to look at Facebook. No, we've got to hear it. We've got to concentrate, focus in on it. Then we have to treasure it. Uh, Jesus said, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So when we do get the truth of God and have the truth of God in our language, in our possession, we don't need to sit it to the side and ignore it. We need to dig into it. We need to get into it like we treasure it. You know, we, uh, we Southern Baptists kind of affirm that the Bible is true and inspired and inerrant and infallible. But then we don't read it a lot of times. And so that's kind of like, you know, those software things that come up and say, hey, do you agree to all this stuff? And we go, yeah, I read it. And we didn't read it, right? (laughs) We do that with the Bible too. We say, we believe it's true. We believe even God inspired it. And yet somehow we live in this cognitive dissonance where we don't actually read it. And that can't can't be the way it is. We have to treasure it. But then once we treasure it, we have to share it with others. Jesus told us, don't take your light and put it under a jar or under the bed, but put it on a stand so that everybody can see it. When we share it, some is going to fall on hard soil, hard ground. Some of it's going to fall on shallow, rocky ground. And then there's going to be some good-looking ground, but there's just too many weeds and thorn bushes. In other words, too much sin in that life for the seed to sprout up and bear fruit. And then eventually we can sow our seed eventually as we go out sowing on the good soil. And God is sovereign over those soils. Now let me ask you, what if your son or daughter is hard ground? Well, pray unceasingly that God will plow that soil. That's why that Who's Your One campaign that we Southern Baptists did was a great idea. We take one person and we we pray for that person. And we look for every opportunity to minister to that person. And we look for every opportunity to share Christ with that person. That should be our one that we are focusing on. But we don't have to stop with that one. Pray for that one that the soil will be prepared by God while you continue to sow seed everywhere else as you go. So we don't need to limit ourselves to saying, well, we're going to work on one person. Yeah, pray for that one person that is special to you and dear to you and that God puts on your heart. But then as you go, continue to sow the seed of the word of God. Now, the last thing that we saw last week was Jesus rebuking the winds and the waves. Today, we will see two more my words fail me, extraordinary, miraculous displays of God's power. Let's start in Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And some of the Gospels may say Gadarenes, some of your Bibles may say Gadarenes or spell it differently. Don't worry about it, no big deal, same place. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And that he that they're asking is Jesus, not the formerly possessed man. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Our first point today is that the gospel frees us from our madness. Let's look at the man with demons. In order to get a complete picture of this guy, we need to look at what the other gospels say about him. We learn from Matthew, there were two, actually two men, but one of them clearly made the larger impression. In verse 27, it says, for a long time he had worn no clothes. Luke 8, 29 and Mark 5, 3 through 4 say that folks tried to bind and subdue him, but he was too strong to be bound. In Luke 8, 27, it says that he lived among the tombs. He, these demons were possessed with, were, were obsessed with death and decay and ruin. They were even murderous. Uh, Matthew 8, 28 says this man was so fierce that no one could pass that way. Luke 8, 33, we see that once they entered the pigs, what they do? They drowned the pigs. They ran into the sea and killed them. And Mark 5, 5 says he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This guy had a reputation. He was supernaturally strong. He was violent. He would come out from among the tombs and he was naked. Now, if I had to walk home and let's say over on 10th Street was a big cemetery. And uh, out of that cemetery, this super strong guy who was horribly violent and crazy would come out and attack people you know what i'd go i'd go over to 84 and take the long way to my house i wouldn't go through there and let me tell you if this super strong crazy demon possessed man was naked i sure enough wouldn't go down that road right so these people were scared of this guy they would avoid the whole region there this everybody knew about this guy feared this guy and stayed far away from him 
Now, what does this fierce, murderous man, whom everyone fears, do when he encounters Jesus? Look in verse 28 of Luke 8. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. I don't know about you, but I love that. Everyone is scared to death of this guy. But he, rather, you know, rather not just the man, but the legion of demons inhabiting this guy, is petrified and defenseless when faced with Jesus. Now, they don't even bother posturing or acting tough. They just come and hit their knees and start begging for mercy. These demons are way more orthodox than a lot of liberal so-called Christians, though, because they know Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. They also know that He has limitless power and authority. Matthew 8.29 even tells us they knew that a day of judgment was coming, but they knew it was not yet that day. They said, Don't, have you come to torment us before the time? They knew there was a time. They knew that there was a judgment day coming. And so they, uh, they were very orthodox demons. They knew the truth. A legion was a Roman military unit comprised of 5,400 soldiers. Now, I don't know exactly how many demons were in this guy, but it was literally Jesus against an army of demons. So are you getting a sense of the power and the authority of Jesus? I still am. I mean, I've read the Bible through many, many, many times. I've studied the Bible in depth, and I'm still trying to get my head around the power and the greatness and the glory of Jesus. So we see Jesus versus this army of demons, and they fall down at his feet and beg for mercy. Now, why do you think Jesus granted the request of the demons to go into the pigs? Well, I don't know, but I think it was so that others would see what happened. I mean, I could go and, and get a guy to come in here and dress like a, dress like a homeless fellow and act kind of crazy, and, and I could say, in the power of Jesus, I command you demons to be out of here. And then the guy could act in his right mind and he could come have a seat and sing and, and enjoy worship. And we'd probably make the newspaper and we might have a bunch of guests next week. <laughs> but I could, I could do that by paying a guy to do that, right? So they might have thought the same thing about Jesus. They might have said, well, did he really fix this guy? But there's no doubting it when these demons go and they inhabit this herd of pigs and the herd of pigs commits suicide. So I think part of his reasoning was, I want to clearly display my power here so that they will clearly listen to my words. Now let's look at the, uh, at the man who was saved by Jesus. Luke 8 verse 35 says, Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man with whom the demons had gone, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, what was this guy doing? He was learning. He was listening. He was probably very likely worshiping Jesus. That's what we do when we've been saved from the insanity of our rebellion against God. Now I said that the gospel delivers us from our madness and you may say, well, but I'm not mad. Really anybody who is in rebellion to their creator, I, I think it's inarguable that there that is madness, right? 
And so when we are in rebellion to God, God can save us and cure us of that madness. Do you remember the parable of the lamp? You don't hide your light under the bed or a jar. You place it on a lampstand. Well, there is more of that instruction to come. This man understandably asked Jesus, can I come with you? He, you know, he's, his whole world has been changed dramatically in an instant. And he says to Jesus, can I please come with you? What does Jesus tell him to do? In verses 38 and 39, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Man, is Jesus back on this witnessing thing again this week? Yes, he is. It must be pretty important. Once Jesus rescues us from the insanity of rebellion and calls us to himself and saves us, then we are to glorify him by telling others what he has done for us. And what did this man do? He did what saved people do. He obeyed his master and he went back to his home and he declared to the whole city what God had done for him. The gospel frees us from our madness, but it also cleanses us from all of our uncleanness. Starting in verse 40, read with me. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed about him. Now, can you imagine the panic of this father? Any of you who have children can imagine. You know that this girl is dying and that Jesus is reputed to be able to heal. And so you have gone, you have asked him, and fantastic news is he has agreed and he's coming with you. But man, I bet he's wanting to clear that crowd out of the way. He is wanting to hurry. He knows that his daughter's life depends on it, or at least he thinks it does. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds around you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I'm not sure that is the best translation there because the word translated has made you well is the Greek word sozo, which means saved. So what he really said is, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James 
and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he, changed, he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now we'll get to uh, Jairus' daughter in a moment. But first, let's look at what seems like an interruption. You know, Jesus does not blow off this woman. He doesn't say to her, look, I've got somewhere to be that is very important, and I don't have time to talk to you right now. Instead, if you understand the sovereignty of God like Jesus did, you know that there aren't really interruptions to your day. There are just unforeseen things by you that happen. And so we aren't near as good as this or anything else as Jesus is, but let's try to learn from him right here. When people interrupt your day and your plans, they are a part of God's plan for your day. Jesus loved people more than his schedule or more than his agenda or more than his perceived efficiency. I need to get better at this, and I would guess that you do too. Um, I was I was talking to Melissa and Catherine. We were talking about something yesterday, and they were both doing other things. And I was like, "Guys, focus. Let's let's get this done." And uh, Melissa said, "Well, we can we can focus on more than one thing. You just can't." <laughs> I said, "Well, okay, that's fair, I guess." Um, but when I'm in a track doing something, trying to get something done, it is not always a welcome interruption when I get interrupted. But I'm trying to learn from Jesus that. Yeah, maybe an email needs to be ignored, but people do not. People that interrupt your day are more important than your schedule or your agenda. Now, it's hard for us to fully understand this woman's plight. We understand the guy who said, hey, my daughter is dying. All of us that are parents or all of us that just love somebody young and and vulnerable like that, we know uh, what his panic was. But this woman... She had a physical ailment, and she was probably weak and anemic. I mean, she had been losing blood for 12 solid years. This is not good. Uh, Socially, you know how even the disciples would respond when something would happen, and they'd say, who sinned? I mean, when the blind man from birth was talking to Jesus, they said, so Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? Which I always thought was a weird question because if you're born blind, it seems like it couldn't be you. But anyway, you know, the, the question is, what did they do to deserve this? And so this woman who had this physical ailment for so many years probably constantly faced that question. What did you do to earn what you got? Religiously, she was ritually unclean, which means there was no temple access for her for a dozen years. Leviticus 15.25 says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. And so by being unclean, she was prevented from going to worship. She had an economic burden. She had spent all of her living on physicians. Uh, some of the other gospel writers are a little harder on the physicians, but Luke being a physician, you know, he said, well, she couldn't be healed. And so she had spent all her money trying to be healed. 
Look with me, though, at the compassion that Jesus had for this woman. In verses 45 through 48, Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, Peter was like, Dude, everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, Jesus says a couple of very interesting things here. One is, this is the only place in Scripture that I could find where Jesus ever calls anybody daughter. That was a very tender and compassionate address to her. And then he says, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, look, if you're sick and I pray for your healing, it is me asking God to do the healing, right? Because I can't do the healing. But Jesus felt power go out of him, meaning he was the source of the power. Next time you need power to overcome temptation or to be obedient in your duty to tell others what Jesus has done for you, like he told that formerly demon-possessed man, by faith, lay hold of God. Now, he's not going to walk by, right? He's not going to walk by so you can't grab the hem of his garment. But you can lay hold of God through prayer. By faith, grasp the promises given to us in Scripture and let his power flow to you. You may ask, lay hold of what promises? Let me give you a few just to be encouraging. Hebrews 13, 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not, that you may be able to endure it. Luke 12, 32, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So when by faith you lay hold of salvation, God cleanses you from all of your uncleanness, just like he cleansed this lady from her uncleanness. Now you may say, I've got a lot of uncleanness. Will he really cleanse me of all of it? Yes, he will. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean there's a little bit of condemnation. 
It means there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So like this woman, you can be cleansed, healed of your deepest sickness, which is sin, and be saved when you grasp on to God by faith. So the gospel frees us from our madness of rebellion. It cleanses us from our terminal case of sin. And the gospel resurrects us from the dead. Jesus can bring the dead to life. Luke eight fifty three to 56. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. That's pretty much the final part of the story for most people. Dead is dead. Dead is final. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but, they, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus had this miraculous, inexplicable, supernatural ability to raise the dead because Jesus has authority even over death. I have great news for you. God resurrected me from spiritual death and will one day resurrect me from physical death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which once you walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is writing here that you were dead. He says all of us were dead. All of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Have you been spiritually resurrected? It's not really all that hard to tell. Dead people and alive people behave differently. Are you producing fruit? Remember the parable of the soils? The good soil produces fruit. Look, a dead tree won't bear fruit. And a dead person won't bear fruit. A spiritually dead person will not bear fruit. Now, you may think you are too far gone to be saved, but again, you can't get any more dead than dead, okay? Dead is, is final for everybody but God. And so if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, it doesn't matter how dead you are, God can spiritually resurrect you. Now, the way he does that is through you hearing and understanding the gospel Repentance, as I've told you and as you've heard a bunch of times, repentance is unconditional surrender to God. And faith, faith is really believing that Jesus has taken my place. He took my place on the cross and paid for my sins, but he also takes the place in my affection for God. 
See, I was a rebel. I was a separated, rebellious outcast. And instead of God just forgiving me, he has adopted me into his family and loves me because of the life of Jesus Christ being applied to me. That is such good news that we need to share that good news. 